This is the next generation of talk radio. You're listening to the Blaze Radio Network on demand. Listen live at theblaze.com slash radio. Morning to you. I am Will Kane, and I am flying solo this morning. Good morning, John. Morning, Jose. Morning, Brian. Got thumbs up all around. Good morning to you at home. All by my lonesome. No SE Cup. Where is SE Cup? Now, I gotta be honest with you, my teeth hurt this morning. Right here at the tips of my teeth. I don't know. It's this pain I've had ever since I got back from rehab. See, meth has this effect on your teeth. Your skin as well. I've really aged a lot over the last several years. Um, again. Methamphetamine, crystal meth, that's what it'll do to you. I understand that a couple weeks ago, SE Cup guessed and opened up those guesses to you as well about where I might have been. Where was I when I was missing? Was I at rehab? Did my crystal meth addiction finally catch up to me? Is that porn I casually reference from time to time, has it finally forced me into rehab? Well, I'm going to tell you something. Revenge is sweet. See, the thing is, when you call out, when you don't come in, second, I get to up the ante. So where's Essie Cup this morning? Where is she? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. 1-800, right? Actually, 888-900-3393. If you call me, if you call that number, 888-900-3393, you're my co-pilot. You're driving this thing with me. But you've got to proffer a guess, my friends. Where is Essie Cup? Now, we can't just run the same old stuff out there. We can't play the rehab joke over and over. You know, she saddled me with rehab. So where is SE Cup this morning? Again, 888-900-3393. I'll put you on the air. You will tell me what happened to my co-host. Regardless of whether SC, where SE Cup is this morning, it's you and me for the next three hours. We've got a lot to cover. we got Kevin Williamson coming up a little later in the show. He wrote an article that caused an absolute storm across the internet. His article entitled Laverne Cox, the actor in Orange is the New Black, is not a woman. He's a transgender actor. Kevin's article proclaiming that Laverne Cox is not a woman had him roundly condemned from the pages of Salon and Slate to Vanity Fair. Kevin became the target of everyone's ire in the past week. A little later in the show, I want to, uh, in this later in this hour, I want, I want some life lessons. I, today, I saw on the subway into the studio this morning some kids wearing cap and gowns on their way to graduation and reminded me of a graduation speech that, uh, that I saw in the past week. I want to share some of the lessons from Navy SEAL training, the life lessons from Navy SEAL training I learned from a graduation speech at the University of Texas in the past week. But first, we have to start where everyone has started this week, where the week began, where the week ended, and that is with Bo Bergdahl. You know, one of my least favorite things about this job, actually one of my least favorite things about where discourse is in our society today, is that it's just so trite. It's just so simple. It's just so cliched. Everything we have to say 
can be done in 140 characters or less. Now listen, I'm not trying to just, in fact, do this cliched criticism of Twitter. And it's really not very new. You know, we used to talk about bumper sticker politics, bumper sticker philosophy, bumper sticker self-help. Everything we thought we believed, everything we could create an image of ourselves was designed to fit on that 12-inch square you stick on your bumper. It's kind of funny. I don't think we've changed much from that bumper sticker. Now it's 140 characters. only difference is you're not telling the guy behind you driving down the highway. Oh, no, no, no. You're telling as many people as you can collect. That's your badge of honor. That's your mark of distinction. How many followers do you have? How many can you share your snark, your wisdom, your political insight with? The, the, my problem with it all is it is just so inauthentic. If I think about what's, what matters to me in this world, what, what is my currency? As I get older, as I do this job for a couple years, it's become authenticity. I swear to you, I'm surrounded. I'm sure you are as well. By fake people. I feel like I'm in eighth grade again, like I'm in junior high, right? Remember when you're in eighth grade, everything, he's real, he's fake, she's fake, he's a poser. But it's like it's all come full circle to me late in my late 30s. Let me craft an image for you that you will like. That's what most people do. Let me tell you what you want to hear. Let me stick my finger in the air. Let me find out what way the lemming herd is running, and if I run to the front of the lemming herd, then I will look like I'm a leader. Well, funny thing, I'm still just a lemming. That's where we are in political discourse. And it doesn't just come from those of us on Twitter or those of us with microphones in front of our faces. That inauthenticity, that triteness about our debates, it comes from Washington, D.C. as well. And, you know, um, I think the Bo Bergdahl debate has been surrounded by that same level of triteness. We have been... We have been given platitudes, one-liners, cliches about why Bo Bergdahl was traded for five Taliban terrorists. Why this trade had to happen now. Why did we do this? From the podium of the president, from the Rose Garden, we are told things that are blatantly not true. And my goal isn't to sit here and tell you, liar, lie, see these lies? My goal is to tell you that It's just simplified, triteness, Twitter politics. A couple of weeks ago, I got in trouble for saying something like that. I said that uh, running your foreign policy via hashtag activism isn't doing your job. It's not giving you moral justification. But selling to the American people your justification for high-level decisions, important matters, based upon bumper stickers and platitudes and tweets and little slick catchisms that we can repeat over and over. Well, that's not foreign policy either. That's not thinking. That's not analysis. It's the opposite. Designed. Designed to be the opposite. Designed to make us not think. I want to give you some examples. Let's not speak in abstractions here. Let's talk about specifics. I want to give you some examples. Why was Bo Bergdahl traded for five Taliban terrorists. Why was Bo Bergdahl a deserter, according to many of his fellow soldiers, 
traded for five Taliban terrorists. Why was Bo Bergdahl a deserter, according to many of his fellow soldiers, traded for five Taliban terrorists now with no notification of Congress? Why was all of that done? Well, this is what President Obama had to say when he said, the bottom line is we have a principle. We have a principle at stake. We leave no man behind. Can we play that cut? We have a basic principle. We do not leave anybody wearing the American uniform behind. Uh, We had a prisoner of war uh, whose health had deteriorated, and we were deeply concerned about it, and we saw an opportunity, and we seized it, and I make no apologies for that. We have a basic principle. We leave no man behind. But that's not true. That sounds good. You can repeat that at your dinner table. You can win the debate with your mother-in-law with that kind of line. Bottom line, we leave no man behind. Sounds good. Sounds patriotic. Sounds untrue to me. I don't have to go very far back in history. I only have to go three years to validate that that's not true. It wasn't even true for this country. It wasn't true for this administration. Look, when we invoke Benghazi, the other side closes their ears and hums, no, 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 and thinks conspiracy and crazy. But explain to me how you can apply the principle. Principles, by the way, are things you uphold consistently. Principles are part of what your belief system is, what you stand up for. Explain to me how you have a principle of leaving no man behind when in September of 2011 in Benghazi, Libya, Tyrone Woods, Glenn Doherty, Sean Smith, and Ambassador Chris Stevens were left behind. How is that? What happened to the principle? Well, look, you know, we couldn't get people there in time. It was complicated. Great. Great. You mean you have reasons? You mean you went through an analysis? Bad analysis, perhaps? False analysis, maybe? According to you, good analysis. But you went through an analysis. You weighed the pros and cons. You looked at both sides, and what you came out at the end is you left some men behind. So why now? When I look at this trade between Bo Bergdahl, for Bo Bergdahl, Possible deserter, according to his fellow soldiers, Bo Bergdahl. Possible deserter, according to his fellow soldiers, traded for five Taliban terrorists, Bo Bergdahl. Possible deserter, according to his fellow soldiers, traded for five Taliban terrorists without notifying Congress and breaking the law. Why should I not analyze this? Why should I not go through the pros and cons? Why should I not ask questions? Why should I just wholly accept a principle which is on its face not true. That we have a principle. We simply don't leave any man in American uniform behind. We did three years ago. And to be honest, we have consistently throughout our history. It wouldn't be hard to find situations that didn't live up to that principle. Does it mean we don't try? No. We try. Does it mean we unthinkingly close our eyes, plug our ears, and charge forward into ignorance to uphold that principle? No, it doesn't mean that either. It means you go through the analysis. 
means you ask the questions, the questions that we've all asked over the past week, the questions that have caused us to be accused of being partisan, the questions that have caused us to be accused of being hypocrites, the questions that have caused us to simply be accused of hating President Obama by going through a rational analysis. Was this a good trade? You didn't simply uphold a principle. You just don't want us to ask these questions. You don't want us to go through this analysis. You just want us to cheer. You just want us to cheer. That wasn't the only platitude. That wasn't the only Twitter bumper sticker justification. That wasn't the only foreign policy reduced to platitudes we were sold this week. We were sold more. I want to go through another couple of those when we come back from the break. I also want you to give me a call at 888-900-3393 and tell me what happened to my co-host. I show up this morning clean, sober, for at least two weeks running at least. Accused of going to rehab. Oh, but the mic is mine. The mic is mine this week. Where's SE Cup? You get the first couple of guests. When we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. I see you out there on Twitter giving me answers about where SE Cup is. You got to call me. You got to be brave. Feel your voice. Come on. You have it. Project your voice. I am going to give you the airwaves. 888-900-3393. Where is SE Cup? You are tweeting me, at Will Kane. You got to give me a call. Let me know where SE Cup is. We're talking about platitudes and foreign policy and justifications and reasons, which are really excuses, reduced to 140 characters, reduced to 12 inches on a bumper sticker, designed to make us stop, stop questioning, stop thinking, stop analyzing, just listen to me. We have a principle. We don't leave a man in uniform behind. Understand? Repeat it. There was an interesting story this week, by the way, where President Obama was on Air Force One, and he apparently went back to meet with the press corps, which was riding on the plane, and he was upset. He was upset that his foreign policy, that people just didn't get it. They couldn't understand it. It's changed over time, you see, from lofty, soaring rhetoric of hope and change, modified down to more realistic expectations of singles and doubles, was the most recent incarnation We achieve singles and doubles. But he's modified it yet again to yet a lower level of expectation. And he went back to the press corps on Air Force One. He said, why is this difficult to understand? Here's my foreign policy. Don't do stupid stuff. Now, I wish Jose, I had prepped him for this, and he had his beep ready because President Obama did not say stuff. He said, 
don't do stupid S. Were you ready, Jose? Were you going to beat me? (laughs) You weren't ready to beat me. Well, nobody beat President Obama. Don't do stupid stuff. I don't have SE Cup here to rein me in. And as he walked away after explaining this to the press corps, President Obama stopped before he went back to the front of Air Force One, and he turned around, this according to Foreign Policy Magazine, and looked at the press corps and said to them, now, what is my foreign policy? And they all, in unison, chanted together, don't do stupid stuff. You see? Don't think, don't question, repeat. That's how this relationship works best. Don't analyze. Just repeat. Cheering would be nice as well. The principle that we uh, don't leave a man in uniform behind wasn't the only platitude we were proffered this week when it came to the Bo Bergdahl trade. There was another one. And truthfully, it's also one that's been echoed on the right. But the problem, again, is that it is not true. Chuck Hagel said that put this uh, principle out there for us this week when he went on Meet the Press. You see, we don't negotiate with terrorists, and we didn't negotiate with terrorists. Listen. Well, first of all, we didn't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, uh, As I said and explained before, uh, Sergeant Birdall is a prisoner of war. Uh, That's a normal process uh, in getting your prisoners uh, back. That's first. Second, as to your bigger question, uh, uh, we are dealing with terrorism and hostage-taking all the time everywhere. Uh, I think America's record is pretty clear on uh, going after terrorists, especially those who take uh, uh, hostages. So we don't negotiate with terrorists, and we didn't negotiate with terrorists. Let's just really quick dispense with the truthfulness of that statement. Um, Bo Bergdahl, by the way, while Hegel described him as a prisoner of war, he was not held by an identified enemy. He was held by a terrorist organization, the Haqqani Network. Not simply the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, a designated terrorist organization. Did we negotiate with them? Well, according to the Washington Post, these talks began with the United States offering prisoners held at Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan. The Taliban said, no, we want these five guys held at Gitmo. The United States pushed How about these guys at Bagram? The Taliban said no. These five guys at Gitmo. Kind of sounds like a negotiation to me. Offer? Counteroffer? Sounds like a negotiation. You negotiated with terrorists. And no matter how many Qataris you put between you and a designated terrorist organization, you negotiated with terrorists. Now here's the deal. I think we all did have. I think the... Every administration checking back to at least LBJ, and I'm sure before that, have negotiated with terrorists. And you would. You wouldn't just run up another flag principle, fake principle up the flagpole. You wouldn't just give us another platitude. What if the Taliban had said, I want every prisoner, every single one, out of Gitmo released. I want Khalid Sheikh Mohammed released. What would we have said? We have a principle. We leave no man behind. No. We didn't negotiate. You broke one of the principles. You broke one of them. Let's talk about this just a little bit more when we come back on Kane and Cup in about five minutes. Stick around.
You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. before this army, put his head between his legs, and kiss his own arse. I'd say that was rather less cordial than he was used to. You'd be ready and do exactly as I say. On my signal, ride round behind our position and flank them. We must not divide I'd say our that kind of negotiation would be one where we would not say, well, we leave no man behind. What if the Taliban had offered that kind of negotiation? We want you to release every prisoner in Gitmo for Bo Bergdahl. Would we have said... Oh, dang it. We don't leave any man behind, so here you go. Give us Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. We want him for Bo Bergdahl. Come with that principle again. We leave no man behind. And what if the Taliban had invoked the William Wallace line from Braveheart, that wonderful line, before we let you go, before we hand Bo Bergdahl back over to you, we want you to walk across the battlefield and kiss the arse of every Taliban member that we can run out here. And then, on your way back, apologize to every woman and child in Afghanistan for being here over the last decade. Would we have said, ah, dang it, that principle. We leave no man behind. I'm just guessing we wouldn't. I'm just guessing that kind of trite justification, that kind of Twitter politics, that sort of bumper sticker rationale wouldn't have uh, been what we sold to the American public. Don't think. Don't analyze. Repeat. Cheer. Repeat again. That's what you're told. Nope. Was Bo Bergdahl traded for five Taliban terrorists a good deal? Just ask the question. Come up with your own answer. Very legitimate analysis to go through. Very legitimate questions to ask. You don't have to accept trite 140 character justifications and go about your way. This morning on the subway, I saw a kid in a cap and gown. He was, uh, by the way, he looked like a high school graduate, thank goodness. I'm not talking about a kindergarten graduation. Or a fifth grade graduation to sixth grade. I'm talking about a real one. Um, you guys remember that line in The Incredibles? One of the best animated movies of all time when they talk about graduating from fifth to sixth grade. And he says, they keep, up, keep coming up with new ways to celebrate mediocrity. No, a real graduation. And there was a real graduation last week at the University of Texas. My alma mater, one of my alma maters, where the slogan is, what starts here changes the world. Not bragging, it's just the way it is. What starts here changes the world. The commencement speaker at the University of Texas graduation was Navy Admiral William McRaven. He was the commander of U.S. Special Operations, which oversaw the mission that killed Osama bin Laden. He is a man. He's a Navy SEAL. He's an admiral, and he gave that commencement speech, and he gave life lessons 
to the graduates of 2014 at the University of Texas. He says, your slogan is, what starts here changes the world. If I might, I like that slogan. I want to give you some advice for how to change the world. Advice that he learned from SEAL training. I'd love to hear from you, by the way, this morning on what the best advice you ever received, best life advice you ever received at 888-900-3393. You can tweet me at Will Kane, but for now, let's stick with the Navy Admiral. On the life lessons he learned in SEAL training, I think these are great. These are these are wonderful. Is I, I And I think this is, you know, I'm struggling. I have a six-year-old, and I know it's a little early, but I'm beginning to try to teach him lessons on how to be a man. Like I saw one of his buddies push him the other day, and not like a fun way. And how, and is it it's six years old? Do you teach him? You got to stand up. You got to push him back. Oh, you're not supposed to tell kids to be physical. I and I'll be honest. Although uh, we have joked on this program, me and Essie Cup, that I consider myself super dad. I don't. I'm, I'm kind of balancing. I don't want him to be a bully, but I want him to be tough. When do you make these transitions? I don't know. But when I do, these are the lessons that I want him to learn. Those from General William McRaven that he gave at the University of Texas commencement speech. He started with this one. If you want to do the big things in life, if you want to make big changes in the world, you got to start with the small changes. Listen. It was a simple task, mundane at best. But every morning, we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bet every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, (laughs) that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. That is wonderful advice. Now, I'm not going to sit here today and tell you that I wake up every morning and make my de- my bed. But I know the difference between a productive day and an unproductive day. And the funny thing about a productive day is it starts right away. It doesn't start at 11 a.m. It doesn't start at 1.30 p.m. It starts when you wake up. You start productivity right away. And it builds upon itself. And productivity... It's like a boulder rolling downhill. It picks up steam. A little bit like exercise. Exercise is easy to maintain, hard to start. Productivity is fairly easy to maintain once you get it going. Man, if you sit around. I'm going to read one more article on the internet. Ooh, I like this movie on TNT. One more commercial break. Boy, that bleeds over. And before you know it, that day is over. You want to change the world, start off by making your bed. McRaven went on, I want to share this one with you personally. He said, several times a week, the instructors would line up the class and do a uniform inspection. It was exceptionally thorough. Your hat had to be perfectly starched, your uniform immaculately pressed, and your belt buckles shiny and void of smudges. But it seemed that no matter how much effort you put into starching your hat, 
or pressing your uniform or polishing your belt buckle. It just wasn't good enough. The instructors would find something wrong. For failing uniform inspection, the student had to run, fully clothed, into the surf zone, and then, wet from head to toe, roll around on the beach until every part of your body was covered with sand. The effect was known as a sugar cookie. You stayed in that uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. There were many students who just couldn't accept the fact that all their effort was in vain, that no matter how hard they tried to get the uniform right, it was unappreciated. Those students didn't make it through training. Those students didn't understand the purpose of the drill. You were never going to succeed. You were never going to have a perfect uniform. Sometimes, no matter how well you prepare or how well you perform, you still end up as a sugar cookie. It's just the way life is sometimes. If you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie. And keep moving forward. Well, that's a lesson I am. It's not too early. I have begun to drill into my son's head. Failure. Failure is so good. Learning how to cope with it. Deal with failure. That's the secret to life in my estimation. I read about the the lady who started the company Spanx. Multi-million tens of millions, perhaps a $100 million business, Spanx, the one that's like the modern-day girdle for women. But the lady, the entrepreneur that started it, said that her dad came home every day to she and her sisters when he came home from work, and he looked at him and he said, what'd you fail at today? And if they didn't have an answer, if they they couldn't answer that question, they were in trouble. Get over it. Get over failure. Get over being a sugar cookie. It's interesting in thinking about our last conversation about negotiations with the Taliban and Bo Bergdahl. McRaven talked about other things you encounter in life and how you deal with them. Let's play cut 12. During the land warfare phase of training, the students are flown out to San Clemente Island, which lies off the coast of San Diego. The waters off San Clemente are a breeding ground for the great white sharks. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if the shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. If you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. These lessons, by the way, could as easily be applied to foreign policy as they are to a six-year-old from father to son. You see, I remember Jonah Goldberg writing about this in National Review quite some time ago. You can't teach your kid that everybody in the world is good. 
Next thing you know, they walk off with the first stranger that offers them candy or ice cream. It's not true. Not everybody in the world is good. There are sharks. And you better learn how to stand up to them. Just a few more lessons from Admiral Craven on this subject of failure, which I love so much. Every day during training, you were challenged with multiple physical events, long swims, long runs, obstacle courses, hours of calisthenics, something designed to test your mettle. And every event had standards, times that you had to meet. And if you failed to meet those standards, your name was posted on a list. And at the end of the day, those on the list were invited to a circus. Now, a circus is two hours of additional calisthenics, and it's completely designed to wear you down, to break your spirit, to force you to quit. Nobody wanted a circus. A circus meant that that day you didn't measure up, and it meant, and more importantly, more fatigue. Fatigue that followed into the next day and made everything you did that day more difficult and more likely that more circuses would follow. But at some time during SEAL training, everyone, and I mean everyone, made on the circus list. But an interesting thing happened to those who were constantly on the list. Over time, those students who did two hours of extra calisthenics got stronger and stronger, and the pain of the circuses built inner strength, built physical resiliency. Life is filled with circuses. You will fail. You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times, it will test you to your very core. But if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circuses. Finally, McRaven's last lesson was this. You can fail, but don't ever, ever quit. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell. A brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit, all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to wake up at 5 o'clock. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. Life lessons from SEAL training. Don't be afraid, of the, don't be afraid to fail. Stand up to the sharks. Don't ever quit. There are more. There are 10 life lessons he gave in a 20-minute speech to the graduates of the University of Texas. I'll post a link to that speech on my Twitter, at Will Kane. You can check it out. You should check it out. I'm trying to figure out how to use those, not just for myself, but for my son. And I suggest we as a country might figure out how to use those and how we deal with the world and how we deal with each other. When we come back, we're going to talk to Kevin Williamson a little bit about the piece he wrote that caused an absolute storm across the Internet We might even talk about how these little underdogs could win today. Big race today for underdogs when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. SC Cup. I'm Will Kane. I'm flying solo today. You're giving me suggestions on Twitter at Will Kane. Jeff Nifke says she's undergoing a procedure to raise the pitch of her otherwise husky voice. It's good, Jeff. That's a good suggestion. Rocky with an eye says she's on a fishing trip. 
Um, Mark Watkins says she's getting surgery to take care of a pesky toenail fungus problem. What is that? Is that something she talked about on the show when I was gone? Does she have a condition I'm unaware of? Um, Don Larkin says Essie's at home installing that eyeglasses wipe wallpaper in the guest powder room. Don, did she talk about that on the air? Because that is absolutely embarrassing. She cannot be putting essentially branded logos on her wallpaper. I told her that. hope she's not doing that. Who is Ed Snowden? Says Essie Cups on the firing range. Drew Bob says she's recovering from another catfish-related injury. I'm getting the Oscar music. They're bumping me off my own show. Finally, Noel Reed Jr. says Essie Cup is being held prisoner in a Chinese fortune cookie factory. Oh, I hope that's not the case. Kevin Williamson, when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cobb. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back and good Saturday morning to you. It is Will Kane flying solo this morning. No SE Cup. Guesses, reasons abound about where she might be this morning, everywhere from hectoring Sasquatch over his views on foreign policy to some sort of medical procedure. We all quite sure. Um, but she's not here. And I am. And I've got with me the man who set the internet on fire this week. That's Kevin Williamson, writer for the National Review, who wrote a piece for National Review a little over, about a week ago, six days ago, entitled, Something Like Laverne Cox Is Not a Woman. I mean, I can't think of a media organization that didn't condemn Kevin Williamson this week, from Vanity Fair to Slate to Salon, and on and on. And it's also hard to pinpoint exactly which part of Kevin's column most enraged his critics. It's hard to pinpoint exactly, I think, what the criticism of Kevin's column is. It could be passages like this. For all the high academic theory attached to the question, it is simply a mystical exercise in rearranging words to rearrange reality. He's speaking, of course, of transgenderism. Facebook now has a few score options for describing one's gender or sex, and no doubt they will soon match the number of names for the almighty in one of the old mystery cults. There are many possible therapeutic responses to the condition of transgenderism, but that, but the offer to amputate healthy organs in the service of a delusional tendency is the moral equivalent of meeting a man who believes he is Jesus and inquiring as to whether his insurance plan covers crucifixion. On the phone with me now is Kevin Williamson, who I will start out with um, condolences, Kevin. You were fired from the Chicago Sun-Times, I understand, for this column. Yeah, which was weird since I never worked there. Uh, it was a little weird for the people to start a petition for them to fire me when I was, in fact, never employed by the Chicago Sun-Times. But they um, they did uh, retract the column and apologize for it after uh, Glad kind of leaned on them. But, of course, the column is still in its original home at National Review, which is not going to be retracting or apologizing for anything because the column is true. Well... Speaking of provocative columns, you're firing from the Chicago Sun-Times, a job which you never held. 
uh, provoked a column from you as well entitled Speaking of Men with No Testicles. Um, yeah. <laughs> indicting the publisher of the Chicago <laughs> Sun-Times. <laughs> so, well, yeah, you, you don't, you're not interested in having this fight. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's one of those. I've actually been following this issue for a long, long time since the uh, early 1990s. In fact, when I first uh, came across Paul McHugh's uh, essay on the subject and kind of got me interested in it. So it's something I've been writing about for a while. It's something that I follow, uh, you know, as part of my general interest in uh, questions related to uh, biology and, and sexual behavior, which is something that I, I write about quite a lot. And, uh, but yeah, there's a certain, you know, kind of. Um, mysticism surrounding uh, transsexualism, particularly male-to-female transsexualism, and this belief that if we all sort of, you know, go along with the act and uh, refer to people like Laverne Cox as she and her instead of he and him, then this becomes true at some level that transcends biology in question, and that's just, uh, you know, it's an exercise in theater, not an exercise in science or anything else. You know, you've in, you've invoked the concept of biology numerous times. I feel like the debate you're having is it's metaphysical, it's philosophical at some point, right? It's about reality. How do we define reality? Um, you know, you said, and I'm curious about this. One of the particularly sensitive areas is male to female transgenderism. I want you to tell me about that, but I also don't completely understand the issue when I see people in the Washington Post, for example, write this. Transgender identity is a provocative topic, and like race, it tends to generate hots, uh, lots of clicks and reader comments. In the end, it's important that journalists keep in mind central, the central guiding principle when covering trans people, particularly women, and that is we're human. But see, when they say when covering trans people, particularly women, I'm not really certain who we're talking about. <laughs> well, when they say that, they're talking about men who are trying to live their lives as women. I mean, there's some... Um and there's some interesting, genuine controversy in in the scientific literature about what causes this, um, what the roots of this behavior are, and um, you know, it's something that I keep up with fairly closely. But if it turns out that uh, some sort of brain anomaly, uh, generally thought having to do with neural density in the hypothalamus or the substructure of the hypothalamus causes this, a man with an unusual brain anatomy is not a woman. He's a man with an unusual piece of brain anatomy. And to say that this makes him at some, as you say, metaphysical level, truly a woman rather than a person with a difficult and painful uh, condition rooted in, in, in brain anatomy is simply an exercise in, in brain essentialism and wishful thinking. You know, it's interesting you bring up this 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 concept of brain anomaly. So you have received criticism, I feel like, uh, coming from two different angles. Um, one is completely lacking of nuance, right? I don't know what your personal opinion is on transgenderism. Uh, I actually, I might to some extent. I also know that your libertarian philosophy largely probably dictates that people can do what they will with themselves, define them how they would like. It's a question of how they impose upon the rest of us that, that it becomes mm-hmm. an issue. Um, but that's boiled down, Kevin, and the criticism that lacks no nuance is it's just a pro and con issue. Kevin Williamson hates trans people and would like to deny them as humans. That's one uh, criticism. Yeah. Well, and that, of course, is just nonsense. Uh, you know, and if you look at the people who've written that, they pretty clearly haven't read my article or read it very closely or read any other things I've written about the subject. Um, I've never 
to my knowledge anyway, denied that this is something that's probably biological in origin, nor that it's something that's very painful and disruptive for people's lives. The question is, how do we respond to that pain and disruption? Do we do it by playing along with their delusions and, in the most extreme version, amputating their genitals and mutilating their bodies? Or do we do it by providing them with real therapeutic care? And you know, my, my preference, obviously, is for the latter rather than the uh, former. What do you, you say, know, when Kevin? People, when people who are suffering from dementia become paranoid, uh, this also has to do with particular structures in the brain being different than they are in and on. Uh, and a person's not suffering from dementia. That doesn't mean that people are actually plotting to get them. You know, things have biological roots that still provide uh, outcomes that are fundamentally delusional. What do you say to the people, and this comes from the other side of the criticism from you, for you, the, the ones who, the first uh, we point to the people who lack no nuance, who boil things down into pros and cons, you're for or against. And then there's those who are saying you're not nuanced enough, right, that are saying sex itself is a construct that isn't binary. There's not simply male and female. There's, and you started to hint at this earlier, these androgen receptors and so forth um, that yeah. actually makes sex something that resides on a spectrum. So you're the one being too simplistic with this kind of binary concept of sex. Your response is what? That what you said earlier? No, no, no. You're not talking about differentiating between males and females. You're talking about well, I mean, the condition. human species is a species that has two sex, and very much the sense that the human species is a species that has two eyes. I mean, there are exceptions. There are people who are born with chromosomal and uh, and physical abnormalities. These things happen. You know, biology isn't algebra. It's not a logic problem. There's a lot of variation, statistical noise in there, mutation, and other sorts of things. But that doesn't change the fact that human beings are fundamentally male and female species, and that's how we reproduce, and that's what drives our evolution. And if you're looking at this from an evolutionary point of view, which is is the view that I I tend to most closely adhere to, The desire to create this metaphysical category of gender and separate it from the biological reality of sex uh, doesn't hold up very well because it's sex, not gender, that drives evolution. And our culture is as much a product of our evolution as our bodies and the cells in them are. So what's happening here is you know, real-world reactions to a real-world difference known as sex. Uh, the rest of the stuff is essentially just a literature we've created to stop talking about the real thing. So just using words to redefine reality. And that's what I said earlier. Uh, we're talking about how we define words, reality. Words about words. What's that? It's words about words. It's not even words about reality. It's just words about how we use words, which is why people in this discussion get so upset uh, over words, not in the thoughts behind them. If I use a male pronoun rather than a female pronoun or refuse to revert to Laverne Cox as a woman, which she is not, um, that's really where the people go nuts on this issue. They call it misgendering. Some people want to make it a hate crime. And uh, it's really the words, not the ideas behind them, not the opinions, not the thoughts, not the criticism. Uh, the belief here, again, being essentially primitive magical thinking that if you can control the language, you can control reality. So you brought up this therapeutic response to transgenderism. What do you say to uh, those that point out, the AMA and the American Psychological Association say this is a real condition, and they endorse um, these surgical procedures as a therapeutic response to it. Yeah, what's interesting is the current term for this condition is called gender dysphoria, and that term is something that was created by the American Psychiatric Association, uh, the American Psychiatric Association rather than the AMA or the APA being the main drivers here. Uh, What's interesting is, though, this diagnosis and its predecessor diagnoses have been on the books for decades now, 
The American Psychiatric Association has never issued evidence-based clinical guidelines for the treatment or even diagnosis of the condition. They've spent a lot of time worrying about what they call it, but they've never actually developed uh, treatment guidelines, which is a really remarkable oversight when you think about it. So the APA, or the American Psychiatric Association, rather, uh, certainly endorses certain views of this and wants access to care, but what that care should look like, what standards should be involved in diagnosing and treating this, they're actually still silent on. It wasn't until... I want to say 2013 that they finally put together a committee to talk about whether they should talk about coming up with some clinical guidelines uh, for this condition. So it's not nearly at the state that people think it is. You mm-hmm. know, people treat this as though it's settled and people know what causes it and the doctors all have a sort of unified opinion on it. And the science is nowhere near anything like that. And the idea that uh, you hear a lot that there's such a thing as a you know, sort of male brain and female brain and male to female transsexuals have a fundamentally female brain is just a grotesque oversimplification of where things actually are. Well, let me do this. I've got to take a quick break. Can you hang around for just a few more minutes? Sure. Um, I want to talk about this. There's a video that's gone viral over the past week about a young kid, I think six years old, who um, mm-hmm. claims to be transgender and what his parents are doing um, in response to that belief. I want to get your opinion on that. Let's take a quick break on Kane and Cup. See you in a few minutes. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. on the Blaze Radio Network. A stirring video that is being shared by millions, a couple's decision to allow their young child, born female, to become male. ABC's Mara Schiavacampo has more on their emotional journey. It's one child's story that has many people talking. Last week, California parents Jeff and Hillary Whittington posted a video to YouTube about their six-year-old transgender child, Ryland. A seven-minute clip that now has more than three million views and counting. That's a story from ABC's Good Morning America this week about a video that went viral about a six-year-old girl who her parents and she both claim is transgendered and um, is actually a boy. The parents are, uh, at the age of six, have decided to accommodate this situation. I'm joined again by Kevin Williamson of National Review. You can follow him on Twitter at KevinNRO. Kevin, um, what is the appropriate therapeutic response to this situation? Well, I think for six-year-olds, probably delay. Uh, there's a similar case in Colorado, uh, a boy named Coy Mathis, who uh, at a very young age uh, began to identify very strongly as a girl. Uh, his parents ended up suing the Colorado Springs School District over their treatment of him. And, uh, you know, it's typical of the sort of stuff that I talk about in this case. The uh, Civil Rights Division, which is the Colorado court that uh, makes decisions in this matter, uh, ruled ultimately in the parents' favor, but did the usual things about, you know, sort of magical language where they um, specifically criticized the school district for using quotation marks around her or referring to Coy as a male, even though he is a male, and said this constituted a sort of a form of abuse. And the mother in the case said that... um, 
She just wants the school to treat her the same as all the other little girls. Well, he's not the same as all the other little girls because he's not actually a little girl. So the problem with people, and, and these things do tend to manifest very, very early in life, you know, at three, four, five, six years old often. So um, the problem, of course, is what do you do about it? And there have been cases where, you know, very young children have been put on uh, hormone treatments and things like that to try to bring their physical bodies more into alignment with their subjective sense of, of what they should be. Uh, and this, to me, is a bit like, you know, um, well, the usual metaphor is, is doing liposuction on an anorexic uh, just because someone has a very strong opinion about how his body should be doesn't mean that we should actually medically intervene to try to make that happen. Well, in fact, so Kevin, I you think... in, in this in this um, condition writ large, I read a portion of your column earlier where you said uh, a doctor who performs uh, surgery on a transgender amputation of their genitals is akin to an insurance salesman who meets a guy who thinks himself as Jesus and says, do you have crucifixion insurance? Your implication is you're taking advantage of someone. The doctor, in your analogy, is taking advantage of someone's condition. Um, you see that even when it's an adult patient. Well, I'm, there may be cases in which they're just driven by you know, financial motives, but I don't think that's really it so much they're taking advantage is that they are choosing to participate in this delusion and do so for ideological reasons. I mean, it's ideology, not science, that explains why the American Psychiatric Association has done what it has done and hasn't done the things that it hasn't done in regards to this issue. So, um, you know, we have a particular sort of liberationist ideology that creates sexual feelings as a special category of feelings. So, so sexual you know, because we don't indulge people walking around, white people saying, I feel like I'm black, therefore I'm black. We make exceptions for, in the sexual category? Well, for instance, when someone, again, to use the, the example of, of anorexia, which like transsexualism is almost certainly uh, rooted in uh, brain anatomy, when they say that I really feel like my body should be X, Y, and Z way, and it's sincere, we don't say okay. We don't defer to it because obviously it's unhealthy. Obviously it's something that's, that's life-threatening. But when someone says, well, I feel like uh, for sexual purposes my body should be something other than it is, we tend to defer to it because we think that not to do so is an act of bigotry, which of course I've been denounced as a bigot in every media outlet in America this week. Um, and it has to do <clears throat> largely, I think, with... Um, the experience that homosexuals have had in terms of winning uh, you know, some level of acceptance and just decent treatment from society. But we're talking about very, very different phenomena here. Uh, you know, transsexualism and homosexuality are completely separate phenomena, and to try to think of them as parts of the same thing for ideological purposes is, uh, is I think, counter. I saw that discussed this week. I don't, I'm not sure what the relationship is. Um, there are straight transgenders, gays, transgenders, it's not connected whatsoever? Uh, well, a lot of people in the field uh, think of, of homosexual men who identify as women and heterosexual men who identify as women as being completely separate phenomena. Um, psychologically and possibly biologically separate phenomena. Of course, no one really knows. I mean, we're not nearly at the point of being able to quite understand that. Right. But they're usually treated as very different sorts of cases. Well, when it comes to children, there are some 
serious questions to ask. You mentioned a case in Colorado. There's a case in New York here. A family uh, that has adopted several children apparently has two. They claim are transgendered. And, and you're talking about, at a very young age, as you said, beginning to take hormone blockers, changing body chemistry. That, I mean, we're talking about children who do not have the ability to make these decisions for themselves yet, parents then making these decisions. I, I, I don't know. I think there's conversations to be had about child abuse at some point. Well, you're talking about irreparable and irreversible mutilation here. Yes. I mean, if you try to give if you try to give a six year old a tattoo, you'd be put in jail. But uh, if we are doing this, we're treating it as though it's uh, you know possibly therapeutic. And I guess maybe the sort of last word about that is that you know follow up studies for people who have gone through you know all the way with sex reassignment surgery find that most of them are happy yeah. with their surgeries, um, although a significant number aren't about one in five. But the majority are happy. But the things that are so I'm going to have to leave it here, Kevin. But uh, I'll tell everybody, everybody should go read your column. It's a debate about what reality is. Thanks for joining us, Kevin, on Canyon Cup. I really appreciate it. Uh, We'll be back with Doc and Skip, actually, in one moment. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Will Kane, flying solo. No SE Cup this morning. Your suggestions on where SE is keep coming in on Twitter. Zippy the Wonder Monkey very nicely said she's studying her thesaurus so she can laugh more at your pronunciation of of obscure words that no one else cares to know. Thank you, Zippy. Paul O'Donnell on Twitter says she's took a helicopter to Long Pond, Pennsylvania, home of the best of the NASCAR races of the season. Pocono. Other suggestions on Twitter suggesting she's at the Country Music Awards. And in fact, suggestion here from Hyperion in 7 says she is in Pontiac with Skip Lacombe. How could that be? She's with Skip from the Morning Blaze? Well, I can guarantee she's not in Pontiac with me because uh, I'm not in Pontiac. Where are you right now, Skip? I am currently in Nashville, Tennessee, actually here for the CMA Music Festival. Why would someone be suggesting you and SE Cup are in Pontiac, Michigan together? And they're saying something about a king-sized bed. I have no idea what this means. I, I have no idea what they're talking about either. I, uh, I, have, I have absolutely no idea what connection to Pontiac <laughs> or a king-sized bed they might be talking about. I, I would go ahead and block them on Twitter, actually. They're rather uh, crazy. <laughs> You're at the CMAs in Nashville. You and Doc together? Yeah, we are. The Blaze actually has a booth down here this year at the CMA Music Festival, um, having a real good time. Actually, we're down in the buckle now. You don't actually even need a ticket for the CMA Music Festival to come by and see us. There's a ton of vendors down there. What we're doing is we've got a photo booth. You can come down and take pictures with uh, you and your friends. If you want Dr. I in there, too, you totally can. And you actually get those cool little uh, four-picture strips of photo strips. And we're just down here having a good time meeting people uh, as part of the CMA Fest. Are some of the Blaze fans around? Have you met some this morning? We've had a bunch of people come by yesterday. Yeah, we're not back out of the booth yet. I don't think the booth opens up until uh, until 10 a.m. Doc and I will be there around noon to 6. But, um, yeah, we had a bunch of people come by yesterday. Um, just having a lot of fun down here. There's a, there's a ton of people down there. And the cool thing about that is, is you don't even need a ticket for the actual festival to come by and uh, uh, have some of the fun at the festivities. They've got dunk cakes out there, free snacks everywhere. 
And, uh, yeah, just lots of fun down there. It's at the Buckle at 2nd and Broadway in downtown Nashville. All right, Skip, now tell me who you've seen. I mean, besides Blaze fans, who have you seen? Have you seen uh, Brad Paisley, Carrie Underwood? I haven't seen anybody yet. I haven't actually seen. They had a a concert last night that I did not make it to. I think it was Miranda Lambert and who's the guy she's with. I can't even remember. But uh, those two, they were like five minutes last night. Blake Shelton, exactly, yeah. So they were uh, playing last night at the main um, event out at LP Field. Didn't make it to that, but um, hopefully we'll see some people come on by the the event today, too. I know that people have been walking around the entire time, um, celebrities. I personally haven't seen anybody because I've been so tied to that Blaze booth, meeting all the Blaze fans coming by. We've, we've had a ton of people who frequent the Blaze.com, watch the Blaze TV, listen to the Blaze radio. So it's a real good place to come out and uh, meet some good people. Are you a country fan, Skip? I do like country. I'm not a huge country fan. I used to be more so when I was uh, living in the Southwest. Um, I don't listen to as much music as I used to, but I do like country. I'm a big fan of uh, Dirk Bentley, uh, Jared Neiman. I'm really a big fan of his stuff he's been coming out with recently. How about you? Are you a country fan? Huge, but a, a country snob. First of all, I know you're from Albuquerque, yeah. and I saw um, the movie with Woody Harrelson and uh, Kiefer Sutherland, I think, with their cowboys, and they come to New York City. And I remember in that movie, they're from New Mexico. And they say no real cowboys are from Texas, where I'm from. They say they're all from New Mexico. So I'm going to give you a little deference on country music, but I am a snob. So um, I have very specific opinions on what is real country and what is this pop bro country that I'm afraid you're going to hear a lot of at the CMA tonight. In fact, we did a whole segment on it last week. But some of my favorite country comes from New Mexico. Really? Like who? Do you know who Ryan Bingham is? Uh, yeah, I do know Ryan Bingham. I know Ryan fairly well, actually. You know him? Or you know his music? Uh, I, I, I know his music. In fact, one of my friends is closer friends with him. I, I've met him one time briefly. But, um, yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. Ryan's a legit rodeo cowboy, and he wrote the song uh, and performs it. That's the I think it was the Oscar-winning song for Crazy Heart with Jeff Daniels. Um, or Jeff right. Bridges. That's Jeff right. Bridges. You're, I forgot about that. That's, you're absolutely right. Yeah, one of my friends... Um, uh, opens for him occasionally when he's doing a show in Albuquerque. They've known each other for years. All right, so you like bro country, though? You like this pop bro country stuff? I, you know, I'm not going to lie, Will. I do like some of it. You, know, <laughs> I, I, you like the pickup truck, uh, the trash can Kool-Aid. I do like to do a little mud on the tires and check out the other half of butterfly tattoos. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> check out the other half of butterfly tattoos. Very nice. <laughs> I try. I try to throw some of them there. But no, we're just having a good fun down there. Good time. Where's Doc? Doc and I. Yeah, Doc is, Doc's at the Continental Breakfast somewhere. You know, he was making another uh, waffle or something. Let me see if I can crank him real quickly. Doc, are you too busy eating your oatmeal to talk to Will Kane real quickly? Who is it, Will? Just Will, yeah. Yeah, then I'm too busy. All right, now that is that. That is a real radio voice, folks, right is there. Is Essie there? Essie isn't there, no. Then I'm too busy. Yeah, I'm too busy. <laughs> if Essie was there, maybe. Yeah, right. I'm going to call her in just a minute. Tell Doc to get on, because between you and me, Skip, our voices, we're just not holding down the husky factor here. I mean, this is... That's what I'm thinking, yeah, that we don't really have the, uh, the husky factor in our voices like Doc. You know, that would add a whole lot more manliness to the show. Exactly. So, so put him on the phone. Doc, what are you having at that Continental he has, a whole lot more manliness. he has a whole lot more manliness when Essie is there, too, just so you know. Oh, I don't know if that's directed at me or her, but it doesn't feel good either way. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good. Continental breakfast, huh? You got a little, little uh, Lucky Charms and uh, an untoasted bagel? Yeah, you know how this works, too. You got you to get it while it's there. There's a limited time factor, and I went running today, so I had a short window of opportunity. All right. Well, it sounds like you guys are having fun. I hope you get to see some country music stars. I hope you get to see more Blaze fans. 
Yeah, absolutely. People have been really great. Will, it is shocking because, you know, this isn't the normal venue we'd be at. You know, we're usually, you know, kind of in the news talk, stuff like that, you know, television, radio. But uh, we come out to something like this. It's amazing how many people are like, wait a minute, this is the place. Oh, my God, the place. This is great. I mean, people are just going crazy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Maybe yeah. we can see which one of those country music stars are actually Blaze fans. I guarantee you there's more than one. I'll bet, I'll bet you a whole lot of them are. We'll see how many will admit they're fans. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's the catch. Get a picture, too, Doc. All right, the folks can come see you guys where one more time? We are at the, in the buckle. It's absolutely free. We're at second and Broadway. Look for the big Cracker Jack bus. That's not a slam on the Blaze booth. That just means there's a big bus with Cracker Jacks on the side with women jumping into pools by it, and then we're right next door. All right, that's Doc and Skip from the Morning Blaze at the CMAs Thanks, in Nashville. Thanks for jumping on, guys. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, um, I want to talk about uh, this this concept of these, uh, I guess they're called rampage shooters. There was another one this week in uh, in the Northwest. I want to talk about that. Um, my opinion, I don't know if it's in flux, but I'm open to considering something I haven't in the past about what causes these guys to do what they do. Um, let's talk about that when we come back on Kane & Co. Will Kane and Desi Cup will continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. going in a moment we're going right now what do you say right now look you know we've had news coverage at least of i don't know what it feels like a dozen stories over rampage mass shooters over the last several years and i've been one of these people that says why after every one of these things do we have to assign attribute the incident to something larger why do we look at the gun and blame it on gun violence, which we patently know is not true because those numbers are down over the decades? Why do we have to attribute it to something like misogyny, a greater problem with men hating women in our society? Why do we have to keep looking beyond the crazy man to something bigger, something we can indict, ah, something we can fix? That's the answer, right? That's why we keep doing that, because we reach for that handrail of sanity, some way to fix this ugly problem. And I have been someone, and I think we talked about this last week with S.E. Cup, who has said, focus, focus on the man who actually committed the action, the shooter. But my opinion is going through a little bit of a metamorphosis. I am open to considering a larger problem. Now, I want to get you in on this conversation. It's 888-900-3393. I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to talk about the role of the media in these incidences. But I want to come back to it, okay? At the top of the hour, at 11 o'clock, let's discuss what role, if any, the media is playing in perpetuating these rampage killings. I want you to give me a call and tell me if you think the media is helping, hurting, or having no effect on this story. 888-900-3393. But first, 
we got to do a little whip around. I want to share a few stories with you that I haven't been able to get through so far this morning. Um, I talked to you earlier about dealing with failure, success, what it takes to change the world. I shared with you some advice that I heard from a commencement address by Admiral William McRaven that he learned in SEAL training about how to stand up, how to change the world, how to never quit, how to fight back the sharks. I think many of you know I'm a big sports fan. Generally, that revolves around human endeavors, football, basketball, baseball, and such. But today, as happens every so often, there is a horse racing at the Belmont Stakes here in New York that has a chance, has a shot at getting the Triple Crown. California Chrome will race tonight at 635, having already won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. Now, this isn't just a story for sports fans. Here's why you want to watch this race. Here's why you want to give two and a half minutes, three minutes of your attention tonight. Because the Triple Crown hasn't been won in 36 years. The last time a horse pulled this off was affirmed. 36 years have gone by since Affirmed won the Triple Crown, and no horse has pulled it off. Now, a dozen horses have done what California Chrome has done, won the first two legs, won the Kentucky Derby, won the Preakness, and fallen short at the Belmont. Now, here's why I love this story, though, and this is why I connect it to that Admiral William McRaven moment, because California Chrome would defy so many of the odds. He'd be the first horse from California, by the way, to win. But California Chrome was bought for 8000 bucks. He's owned by a couple of blue-collar guys and have blue-collar jobs. He's not some Kentucky blue-bred, is that a word? Uh, blue-blooded, that's what it is, blue-blooded. Uh, you know, fancy pants. Kentucky Chrome was bought for eight grand. He was stud feed. I mean, he, I'm sorry, his mare, his mom was bought for eight grand. His, fa- his father, he was sired for a $2,500 stud fee. That's 10 grand investment. Now, a normal stud fee runs like, can run like $150,000 for a good horse. The point is, for $10,000, this little blue collar horse has a chance tonight to win the Triple Crown. When he was sired, the breeder looked at the guys who bought him and said, let me tell you something. If you're trying to breed a racehorse out of these two, you guys are a bunch of dumbasses. They named their partnership DAP. Dumbass Partners. There's a chance tonight for Dumbass Partners and California Chrome to win the Triple Crown. I'm going to be rooting for it. 36 years in the making. I want this little horse to win it. I hope you win it. watch it too. Like good underdog stories. Now here's a story that we can all get behind as well. Apparently, Instagram has a problem with nipples. Several topless photos have been taken down from Instagram. And I'm not talking about just, you know, regular old folks out there. We're talking about Rihanna. Rihanna, who went um, to some fashion awards this week in a sheer dress. I'm telling you, all she had on was panties in some sheer dress. Also had posted some uh, topless photos of herself on Instagram. Instagram took it down. Rihanna got upset. She deleted her account, which I think had 36 million 
followers, 35 million followers. Instagram didn't like that moment, did a little self-reflection. Are we really against nipples? See, the issue seems to be that. I'm not just using that word to be salacious. <laughs> because it's not just, uh, it's not just Rihanna. Uh, uh, Scout Willis, which is Bruce Willis and Demi Moore's daughter as well, had some, uh, had some issues. She, uh, she took off her shirt and walked around in protest of Instagram's policies this week. She went out for a trip on the East Village, uh, topless. I mean, these are easy to find on the internet. And she sees this as a serious, serious cause. She wrote a column for exojane.com. She says, there are some people who would criticize my choice to relate nipples with the equality at all. To me, nipples seem to be at the very heart of the issue. In the 1930s, men's nipples were just as provocative, shameful, and taboo as women's are now. And men were protesting in much the same way. In 1930, four men went topless to Coney Island and were arrested. In 1935, a flash mob of topless men descended on Atlantic City. Forty-two of them were arrested. And men fought. And they were heard. They were changing not only laws but social consciousness. And by 1936, men's bare chest was accepted at the norm. Eighty years later... Why can't women seem to achieve the same for their chests? That's rumor Willis's, Willis's fight. John, when did you start burying your chest? Uh, no one wants to see me without my shirt. <laughs> I was just wondering if men's nipples were also being, um, you know, censored on Instagram. Oh, but so I'll, you're I'll, simpatico with uh, rumor Willis here. She's pointing out exactly what you're asking. Men get to do it. Why not women? You sympathize with rumor. And her point. I, I think uh, they're nipples. I mean, people, we sexualize women's, you know, breasts, but, you know. It's because they are, John. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a problem with it. All right. It's a story we can all get behind, I think, right? Come on, Instagram. Let's take a hard turn when we come back. I want to open that question up to you. 888-900-3393. What role, if any, is the media playing? in perpetuating these rampage shootings. Let's talk about that when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane S.E. Cup R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Good Saturday morning to you. I'm Will Kane. Follow me on Twitter at Will Kane. And she is. Oh. She's not here. Essie Cup's not here. Where is she? I'm not actually not going to ask that question right now because of the nature of our conversation over the last 10 minutes. Um, and where it could go now. But So forget that. I forget I mentioned it. Um, the conversation we were having about uh, this cause to free ourselves uh, for nipple equality, um, it seems to be a hot topic. I-, I didn't understand. I didn't realize this was uh, an injustice out there. Rumor Willis has made me aware of it. Rihanna, to some extent, has made me aware of it. Rumor Willis pinned a column in exojane.com suggesting men had their nipples freed in the 1930s. When do women get the same treatment? Um, John, you're telling me they do in New York City. Yeah, in New York City, women can go topless anywhere a man can as long as they're not, you know, doing anything, you know, 
not trying to profit from it or not trying to. What does that mean? You know, not trying to profit? Like, I guess like strip clubs. Out, you, know, you mean like an impromptu strip show on on Forty Second? You know, and, like uh, when we're on Times Square, they have the barkers. You know, naked women. You know, I don't think you can have women barkers with their, uh, you know, uh-huh, breasts uh-huh. bare. Uh-huh. But uh, or like a photo shoot, maybe. I, I mean, actually, you probably can have a photo shoot. Well, they have, I think, yeah. had nude photo shoots right in the middle of the street, but. Uh, I think as long as they're not doing anything sexual, I think it's fine. I, the picture not, that a, I'm not saying that as an opinion. I think it is fine, actually. Legal. But, but I think legally, legally it's fine. And Jose, who used to be a parks enforcement uh, official, really? told me. He confirmed it. He said yes. Do you want to explain it, uh, Jose? I don't know that I would call myself an official. Uh, I was just uh, in uh, my teen years, I was a park enforcement officer. And uh, the, the rule of thumb was um, if a female walks into the pool area, Topless, all we can do is maintain order. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh. So, wh- what do you mean by order? So, as long as the crowd around her doesn't go bananas and yeah, so <laughs> so people don't go become un- unruly. Yeah, as, like, long, as long as that doesn't happen, she's free to yes. I think so it's, it's like a heckler's veto. If the crowd goes wild, she has to cover up. It's not her. It's not the crowd's fault. It's her fault. It's an interesting conversation. By the way, the fact that you're a parks officer at one point is going to open up a whole line of questions and commentary I have going forward. But, uh, I mean, it is arbitrary, right? I mean, outside of the bra industry, I mean, who who has a vested interest in this? What is indecent? That's the question, right? We have laws on indecency. What is indecent? I think that's an interesting question uh, to explore and why we have at least, I don't know, traditionally, legally developed a line. It's worth it's worth asking. It's worth talking about. But here's something that's more important. Here's something that's uh, a question more worth asking. I told you just a few moments ago that my opinion over the past several years on what's behind these rampage shootings, what's behind these mass shootings, what is the larger societal driver, I've been fairly dismissive of that. Um, I feel like it's a distraction from the man who commits the act, the man who pulls the trigger, the man who thrusts the knife, the man who drives the car, the man who plants the bomb, the crazy man who commits the act by invoking things like the gun or misogyny or the media. It's been my opinion. You're distracting from the real thing and driven by something else, an agenda, or maybe just a desire to find a cure. Because it's hard to accept that craziness exists, and there's very little we can do to stop it. But this week there was another shooting. Aaron Ibarra um, was arrested for going on to Seattle Pacific University. He killed one person, a 19-year-old freshman, wounding two other people. He was armed with a shotgun. He was heroically taken down by a young man, John Mice, 22 years old, who, when Ibarra stopped to reload his shotgun attacked him with pepper spray, and took him down. John Mice is being celebrated, as he should be today. Praise is coming in from all quarters. His roommate tweeted this week, I'm proud of the selfless actions that my roommate, John Mice, showed today, taking down the shooter. He is a hero. That is true. John Mice is a hero. But the situation, the facts around the murderer this week are also interesting 
In 2010, he called 911. Aaron Ibarra called 911 and said he had a rage inside him, that he wanted to hurt himself and others. Two years later, officers again responded, this time finding him lying in the middle of the street in front of the suburban Mountain Lake Terrace home, ranting drunkenly for a SWAT team to get him and make him famous. That's the key, to get him and make him famous. Again, I've been dismissive of this idea that we can attribute societal causes, larger issues to the actions of these crazy people. And Aaron Ibarra was clearly sick in some way. But an article in the Wall Street Journal from 2013 suggests that I should be careful. That these guys are sick, yes, but in a very specific way. That all of these guys who we will call rampage shooters share some common traits. And I think it's interesting to review these. What the Wall Street Journal and this doctor interviewed said seems to be a commonality to all of these rampage shooters. And then ask ourselves, if there's a commonality, then therefore is there something to fix? A couple of quick things. He says, first of all, on these rampage shooters, they don't snap. They don't all of a sudden twist off. They meticulously plan these incidences. They, in fact, obsess about them. They're not impulsive, and they study other mass shooters. Many perpetrators pay obsessive attention, this from the Wall Street Journal, to previous massacres. There is evidence for a direct line of influence running through some of the most notorious shooters. From Columbine in 1999 to Virginia Tech in 2007 to Newtown in 2012, including their explicit references to previous massacres and calls to inspire future antiheroes. Aaron Ibarra, the rampage murder from this week, it's reported, was obsessed with the 1999 Columbine shooting. So they don't snap. They're meticulous planners. They're obsessive, and they study other mass killers. The author in the Wall Street Journal also suggests that there's common personality traits as well, that these massacre killers are typically marked by what are considered personality disorders. Now, we said this is a crazy man, but he said this is better understood as a personality disorder. Grandiosity, resentment, self-righteousness, a sense of entitlement. They become, as Dr. Knoll, the doctor quoted this article, says, collectors of injustice who nurture their wounded narcissism. To preserve their egos, they exaggerate past humiliations and externalize their anger, blaming others for their frustrations. They develop violent fantasies of heroic revenge against an uncaring world. Wow. Doesn't that sound like Elliot Roger? The story from a few weeks ago, the murder at the UC Santa Barbara, harboring narcissistic delusions of victimhood that he can go seek justice upon those who made him feel the way he feels in this world. And this, I guess, is the most important, and this is the one that made me think, well, maybe I do need to consider larger causes than simply attributing it or exclusively attributing it to the actions of one crazy person. In the article, it says, one of their motives are mass shooters aim to tell a story through their actions. They create a narrative about how the world has forced them to act, and then they must persuade themselves to believe it. 
the final step in crafting the story for others and telling it through spoken warnings beforehand. That's manifestos like Elliot Rogers. Taunting words to victims or manifestos created for public airing. What these findings suggest is that mass shootings are a kind of theater. Their purpose is essentially terrorism, minus in most cases a political agenda. The public spectacle, the mass slaughter of mostly random victims is meant to be seen as an attack against society itself. The typical consummation of the act in suicide denies the course of justice, giving the shooter ultimate and final control. They have personality disorders that harbor victimhood and entitlement and want to exact revenge. They study other mass shooters, and then ultimately they want to act their story of injustice in a theater-type way out for the whole world to see. The author of this article suggests if all that's true, if this research, which isn't just anecdotal, he suggests, is true, then there are some serious questions we have to ask and questions and cures we need to implement. Those specifically involve the media, that the media must start covering this differently because that is giving these guys the ultimate payoff that they're seeking. It suggests use their names as little as possible. Don't air their manifestos. Don't sensationalize these things. Even the victims, while they should be mentioned, they shouldn't be repeated over and over. But certainly the killers' names shouldn't be repeated over and over. You're giving them the theater stage. You're giving them the story that they wanted to tell. Now, I have talked to you, and I have said this, and I think it's so important to reiterate. Violence is down in America. Gun violence is down in America. Crime in general is down in America. And at least through 2010, mass shootings, mass killings were down in America. But this author in this study suggests they are they work in fits and spurts and sprees and bunches. That when you have one, you then all of a sudden have five, and then you have 15. It's not necessarily a arc, a curve. It's a up and down, jaunty, erratic pattern. But what happens is they get coverage. They're turned into spectacles. They're sensationalized. Others see it. They imitate it. And in this article in the Wall Street Journal, they suggest this happened in Vienna, Austria. They had this problem. And the media actually implemented some of these changes, and the incident of mass shootings went down. I don't know. Again, I've been reluctant to blame things on the media, on the gun, on societal factors to suggest you need to look at the man who actually commits the action, the crazy person behind the killings. But I'm interested in this. I'm willing to consider this, that there is a certain bloodlust with which the media covers these things over and over so that you can almost hear the ratings thoughts in their minds going through. Oh, this is going to get attention. Oh, this will get clicks. Oh, this will get viewers. And I admit that turns me off immensely that turns me off. And if it's true, if this research is correct, that it's actually helping to perpetuate these problems, boy, we have some jobs to do as media, a responsibility to uphold, something to think about. Yes, you tell the truth, but you realize that when you pervert that truth into sensationalism, you're actually helping to perpetuate these things. 888-900-3393. Give me a call. Let me know what you think. 
I want to talk to you about a lifeline in the next half hour. I want to talk to you about one of the most proud things I've done since I got into this business. When we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Story of uh, life imitating art out of Spain this week. Early Eddie Murphy is about as good as it gets. I mean, early Eddie Murphy is comedy gold, classic, stands the test of time. Watch the SNL greatest hits, the greatest of Eddie Murphy. I mean, I don't. I don't think Will Ferrell, I don't think any modern incarnation comes as close to what Eddie Murphy was able to pull off on Saturday Night Live. And early movies like Beverly Hills Cop, 48 Hours, and Trading Places, those things hold up, my friends. Those are good. Story out of Spain this week imitating one of those movies. You remember the scene in Trading Places where towards the end the guy dresses up in the gorilla costume for the uh, New Year's Eve party and he ends up in a cage with a real gorilla? shipped off to a zoo somewhere, stuck inside his gorilla costume in a cage with another gorilla. Well, in Spain this week, an employee was running around a zoo mimicking an escaped gorilla as part of a drill. How would they respond if one of the gorillas got out of their cage? He was running around imitating, mimicking a gorilla, wearing a gorilla costume. This is at Tenerife, Spain at Loro Park. Zoo. When a veterinarian saw him, spied him, and he apparently didn't get the memo about the drill because the veterinarian went and got his tranquilizer gun and he dosed it up to about what it would do to take down a 400 pound gorilla. And he ran out as this guy is running around the zoo in his gorilla costume, takes dead aim, and shoots him down with his tranquilizer gun. The guy had an allergic reaction to the dose. He was taken to University Hospital in the Canary Islands. I think he's going to be okay. He is in serious condition. I don't mean to laugh, but I think he is going to be okay. And if that isn't out of trading places, I don't know what is. The veterinarian opened fire with narcotic dart that struck the victim in the leg that fell, slumped to the ground at a time when he was, in fact, this says, according to La Opinion, in the cage with other apes. This is not good. (laughs) Don't run around. The lesson is, when you volunteer to run around in a gorilla costume in the zoo so that other employees can practice their panic, make sure everyone is made aware of the drill, lest you get shot down with a tranquilizer dart. Trading places. Go check it out. Really good. Uh, Quick announcement to make. So, on Wednesday... I will be co-hosting The View with Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Sherry Shepard and Jenny McCarthy. 
I'm not joking, actually. I really am going to be. <laughs> I'd love for all of you to uh, to tune in and see how that goes. Um, I'm anticipating it will be fun. Amari Stoudemire is going to be on the program. He's got a new cookbook out. All this sounds like I'm playing a joke. It's not. I'm really going to be on The View, and Amari Stoudemire really does have a cookbook. Amari Stoudemire, the power forward for the New York Knicks. He'll be on the program. Daniel Radcliffe, a.k.a. Harry Potter, will be on the program. So uh, so check it out. Give me, a, give me a few minutes of your time on The View. Support one of the Blaze's own going over there if you wouldn't mind. I ask you humbly. I won't be wearing a gorilla costume. I won't be wearing any costume. I do wonder how I'm going to act. I mean, I'm going to be myself. But you ever notice on these kind of shows where you run out and you high-five the audience? I've never high-fived an audience before. Should I high-five the audience? Well, I don't really know. Or do you kind of stroll out like uh, coming out of the tunnel at a football game? <laughs> I don't know. These are the little things. Like, what do you do? You walk out. You take your seat, right? But everybody else high-fives the audience, does the low five, does the whole thing, right? Elbow bump. It's not natural for me. It's not natural. Hmm. Watch that moment. We'll see what I do. Uh, 888-900-3393. Tweet me at Will Kane. Listen, when we come back from break in just a moment, I want to tell you this. Um, one of the things... I'm most proud of since I have entered this business um, is a documentary I produced over the last several weeks. I want to talk to you about that. The finale um, was released just uh, just this past week on Friday, Elise versus the mayor. I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about what inspired this, what this, uh, what this story, what this issue means to me, um, and why I think it should mean something to you. This wasn't just a vanity project. This wasn't just a personal crusade. I want to tell you why I think this is so important. I want to tell you why I think it's so important to all of us, not just me, not just conservatives, but Americans, people, why this issue is the one I think we should all rally behind. When we come back on Canaan Cup, the most important thing I can think of that I've done in quite some time. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and S.E. Cup return. I want to tell you a story. You can probably remember this a couple of months ago. There was a, a ferry that traveled between islands in South Korea, and this ferry capsized. 100-plus school kids, teenagers on this ferry, and they drowned. And it unfolded slowly. Much of it on video for us to see. It's sad and noble. What you see on that video starts out with the kids kind of laughing. Oh my gosh, can you believe this is happening? Transforms sort of into denial after that, that the kids are going, surely somebody's going to come to save us. 
surely something will happen, and it transforms into fear. And then after the fear, on these YouTube videos from these kids in South Korea, you see them begin to give these heartfelt goodbyes to their parents. It goes from horrifying to noble. The story I want to tell you is that it's happening again, this time here in the United States. And it happens almost every day. Maybe not in the exact same details, maybe not in the exact same scenario, maybe not the exact same situation. It doesn't happen in the hundreds. It happens in the thousands. And it happens over generations. I want you to imagine with me, okay? I want you to imagine a ferry that travels between islands here in the United States. On one island, you have poverty, you have despair, you have bleakness. You have no hope. And on the other island, you have light, hope, opportunity. And every day there's a ferry that travels between these two islands. And every day, children board this ferry. 18-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 7-year-olds, 6-year-olds, 4-foot-tall 6-year-olds board this ferry, clear-eyed, unblemished skin, unblemished personalities by the world, full of hope. Every day they board the ferry hoping to get off of the island of despair and travel to the island of hope. Because that's what the ferry does. It travels from one island to the next, shuttling kids in the thousands, shuttling kids for generations. Except Except every day the ferry capsizes. Every day. Every day the ferry hits a sandbar or another boat or a pier and capsizes and children drown. Every day. Now here, this is the most perverse part, okay? This ferry I'm telling you about, this story I'm sharing with you, On this ferry, which is designed to shuttle kids from one island to the next, designed to shuttle kids from hope to despair, from despair to hope, rather. It's staffed with lifeguards. And each of these lifeguards has a life preserver. Each of these lifeguards has a buoy, a lifeline they can throw to these drowning kids, a lifeline they can throw to these six-year-olds bobbing in the water. And the same scene plays out every day. Many of these lifeguards have weak arms. They all have old, decrepit, waterlogged life buoys. And they futilely go through this ritual. They futilely throw these worthless life preservers a few yards, ten yards, short of drowning kids. Day after day, they do this. Waterlogged life buoys, weak arms, 10 yards short of kids. And day after day, these heads, these six-year-old heads sink beneath the surface. Now, an interesting thing has happened over the last couple years in this story that I'm telling you. An interesting thing has happened. Some other passengers who ride this ferry who had heard about this horrible ritual that takes place, 
who knew of this story, who knew of what happened day after day, began to board the ferry. And what did they do? They brought with them their own buoys. They brought with them their own life preservers. And when the inevitable happens, when the inevitable happened, as they knew it would, they began to throw their lifeline to the children. Now, look, some of these passengers were just as weak-armed as the ferry's lifeguards. And their throws fell well short. But others reached a few of the kids. And before you know it, a couple of kids were pulled from beneath the surface. A couple of the passengers and the buoys they chose to bring reached the children. And they began to pull some of them out of the water. A couple of kids were pulled to a rescue boat. They were saved. Now, as you can imagine, other kids saw this happening. Other kids that are in the water, they saw this lifeline. And they began to swim towards those lifeguards. They swam towards these vigilante rescuers. Of course, there weren't enough. There weren't enough good buoys. There weren't enough good life preservers. There weren't enough strong-armed throwers. Not all the kids were saved. But some were. As you probably didn't imagine, couldn't imagine how this would happen, but the lifeguards, the official lifeguards, they got upset. And the ferry's captain, the guy who had hired the lifeguards, he got upset. And they said things like, we can't pull just a few kids out of the water. We can't just save a few kids. We have to pull all the kids out of the water. Don't you understand? We have to save all the children. We have to work on improving all of our buoys, okay? Stop what you're doing. Stop. Stop pulling a few kids out of the water. We have to make sure all of our buoys are better. I mean, these vigilante rescuers, these passengers who had brought their own buoys, looked up in disbelief. But you've been doing this. You've been doing this day after day. You've pulled none of the kids out. I mean, you haven't haven't upgraded your buoys. You haven't pulled all of the kids out of the water. You haven't even pulled some of the kids out of the water. But the ferry's captain shut down the practice of passengers bringing their buoys. The ferry and the ferry that sank every day went back to weak throws with waterlogged buoys. And no longer were a few kids pulled out of the water. We went back to all the kids drowning. Clearly, as you know, I'm not talking about a real ferry. And I'm not trying to draw a moral equivalent to what happened in South Korea. But I'm telling you, there's something real happening here. Maybe it's not a drowning, and I'm sorry for the melodrama. But I assure you, this is no less dramatic. For half a century, for 50 years, children in this country have been left to fail in our education system. Not all of it is bad. Not all teachers are bad. There are great teachers, but the system as a whole has failed. For half a century, we have invested more money in education, more money, tripled money, and test scores have flattened. We've dropped to 17th in the world in most educational standards. Here in New York City, 80% of high school graduates don't have basic skills in reading, writing, and math. That's failing. That's drowning. That's letting kids go under. And then there are, in this analogy, 
those passengers who came on and wouldn't accept that any longer and brought their own buoys. There's vouchers. There's school choice. There's charter schools. These are the passengers who threw their own buoys. And some of them were really good. And just like in my story, some of them are not. Some of them couldn't do any better than the regular system. Some of them did. And kids swam towards a successful one. Here in New York City, the waiting list to get into charter schools, to get out of the failed system, is 50,000 names long. 50,000. And the captain, the ferry's captain in this city, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, did the exact same thing. You must not. You will not have this escape route. He shut down the most successful charter school in this city. No, the most successful charter school in this state. That's what my story, Elise First the Mayor, is about. It's about a lifeline. This mini documentary series I produced, Elise First the Mayor, is about the story I just told you. The fourth and final episode went up this week. I want to tell you a little bit more about it when we come back after the break. I hope you stick around for the last 15 minutes of Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and Cup returns now. Elise versus the Mayor. It's a documentary, a mini docu-series I produced for The Blaze. It's on The Blaze's YouTube channel, YouTube slash The Blaze. It is a story about a 10-year-old girl in Harlem who attends the best public school in the state of New York, Success Academy Charter School, where math proficiency is 82%. Across the street at PS 149, math proficiency is 3%. You tell me this isn't a lifeline. It was a lifeline ripped out of her hand, out of 10-year-old Elise Alexander's hands, by New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. It is a story of this little girl's fight to keep her school. It's a question for anyone that calls themselves a progressive about why You stand up for what you do and why you say what you say. It reveals, in my estimation, who believes what and who stands for what. The next time someone on MSNBC suggests that conservatives are racist, I will respond, what about Elise? The next time someone says, well, Republicans, they don't care about the poor, you should respond, Well, what about Elise? Watch the docuseries. It's four episodes, each about seven minutes in length. I think this story illustrates the philosophical divide. It's the truth serum. It's the sodium pentothal. This shows what you believe, what you stand for. This cuts through your words. The finale of Elise vs. the Mayor went up on Friday. I'll tweet it out. It's emotional. The final moments where you find out, where Elise finds out what will happen to her school. It's emotional, and I'm proud of this story. And I'm going to ask you to share it because I think, not for me, not for the blaze, 
but because it illustrates everything, in my estimation, that we fight for, everything we argue about, that we debate. This is the illustration. This is the story. I will greatly appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family. Elise First the Mayor on YouTube slash The Blaze. Um, three hours rolling solo by myself this morning. Where was SE Cup? You're still guessing on Twitter. Um, I don't think anybody has actually nailed the exact whereabouts of SE Cup. Um, well, you guys have put together some good guesses. Some of you put together some very good guesses, I would suggest. Um, she will be back next week. We will be together for three hours next week. I know you miss her. I do as well. It's always fun to have SE go back and forth with on all these topics. Um, I want to remind you, I will be hosting The View on Wednesday, June 11th, 11 a.m. I hope you support me. I will not, as Joel Barrows suggests on Twitter, wear a gorilla suit on The View. I won't do that. Um, I will be debating whether or not I should be high-fiving the audience on my come out. Am I going to wear my cowboy boots? I always have. Why would I take them off for The View? I don't know. These are the kind of things you think about, right? Not the lofty thoughts you might want to share with America. <laughs> How's my hair? How's my hair? It's the view. Um, yeah. Next week, me, SE Cup, we'll go back over exactly what happened this week on the view. I'll also be hosting a radio show next uh, tomorrow night on WABC here in New York City. I welcome you to uh, to come and join me. Stunt brain. Michael Pelka, who hosts the show before me, which you should listen to if you do not, says, I've done a yeoman's job today. Everybody knows I had to look that word up. I don't even know. Yeoman? Yeoman? Is that good? Yeoman? Yeoman? Yeoman! See? Thank goodness you're here, Jose. Yeoman's job. That's, that's a good thing, right? This, this, next time, Chris, just come on the air. I'm used to it. I don't even know what to do when there's not somebody here to correct my pronunciations. I've never been called a yeoman before. I almost fought Opelka for calling me it. Didn't know it was a good thing. I guess it is. You got Chris Calcedo coming up in just a few moments. Uh, stick with him here on the Blaze Radio Network. And I have one last thing I want to say this morning, okay? If you will indulge me this. Sweetheart, happy anniversary. This is my anniversary, June 7th, 2003. I was married, and I'm happily married 11 years later with two beautiful children and a incredibly beautiful wife, who I forgot, by the way, during my rehearsal dinner at my wedding to thank. I thanked everybody else for coming, not her. So I'll do it today. Thank you, sweetheart. All right, folks, thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope you hang out with us all through the week. And again, next Saturday when Will and SE will be back together on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.